come today to Esther, to Esther chapter 5. I invite you to turn there on your devices, in your Bibles. You also print it in your bulletin. We're going back to Persia, to a time and a place not so different than our own. And in Esther, we've been discovering providence. That is God's active involvement in our world. Our unseen God directs all events, big ones and little ones, and all of them towards the goal of his glory and our good. He is, as we heard, actually, the God who is and who was and who is to come. Everything you realize in human history is happening according to God's perfect plan. Providence actually shows us that God was orchestrating past events long before any of us were aware of it. In chapter 1, we read about a royal marital spat where the queen of Persia was removed, which led to chapter 2, a now lonely king wanting to hold a Miss Persia beauty contest, a contest that a pretty Jewish orphan girl named Esther would win and become queen. So way in the past, God created Esther beautiful, and then he created a vacuum beauty, a beauty vacuum for her to fill, long before Esther had any idea what God was up to. Providence also tells us all future events will be orchestrated by God as well. That's actually what Haman, or what Mordecai, told Esther last week in chapter 4. After this public edict goes out, Haman the Horrible got the self-absorbed king to deliver, to agree to a Jewish judgment day. But Mordecai reminded her of God's providence in the future that Esther need not fear because deliverance would arise for the Jews. God had made a future promise to his people, so evil cannot win. Which leads us, if God's orchestrating all past events and all future events, to ask what providence means for you and I today in the present. Last week we ended with Mordecai urging Esther to risk her life, to go plead on behalf of her people. He asked, who knows? If you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Do you see what that question invites? God's orchestration of all events, total control of everything throughout all human history, doesn't mean that we're to remain passive in the present. No, providence actually invites us to see our privilege to participate in God's plan. Providence invites us to trust and to be transformed, as we're going to see what happens to Esther. But let's pray first so that God might do the same in our own lives. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now, and you are in the heavens, and you do all that pleases you. Every one of us here, we want to do mattering things going forward. So I ask and pray, we ask and pray, that right now as we hear your word, you'll send your spirit, that we might see Jesus and believe and trust in him, that we might be transformed, be made like him, that we might leave here and go out and do things that matter towards the ultimate purpose that you've directed all history towards your glory and our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now hear the word of our God. We'll be starting in Esther chapter 4, verse 15, reading through chapter 5. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, 
and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarter, quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she had prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. I know many of us have avoided going outside too much in the last week due to the unhealthy air quality from the Canadian fires. This impacts our bodies, right? But friends, all of us have been inhaling an unhealthy environment that actually impacts our souls. Our nation is much like Persia. I've been arguing this, where we rarely hear anything publicly about God, not even a whiff about God or anything spiritual. We live in a secular culture that denies providence. And you guys are all, myself included, inhaling this unbelief daily. I just heard another day, our weathermen hoping that Mother Nature would cooperate with us this week. So some inanimate force, Mother Nature, gets credit for whether it rains or not. Every day, don't folks explain things away by luck, chance, fate? Oh, I was really fortunate today, fortune. And here's the problem for you. When these particles 
impact your soul. You know what happens when we don't believe in providence? When we don't look upward to God, we look inward to self. We become self-centered, self-preserving, self-promoting. We saw this actually last week in Esther's first response to the notion of going to the king. What did Esther say? Was she a brave hero? She said, no way. Not going to do it. Her first response was self-preservation. You see, Esther's soul had been impacted by breathing in the secular Persian environment. But then what happened? Mordecai reminded her of God's promise that he would deliver his people. And she was instantly transformed by the word of God. That's actually my hope for us today that we're going to hear from God's word and we're going to be transferred so we'll stop looking inward and start looking upward and outward from a self-serving posture to a sacrificial one. That's our point today, and that's what we see in Esther. So we're going to walk through the first three scenes. These three scenes, the first was actually initiated by that question, Mordecai's question, who knows if you have not come to this position for such a time as this. Notice Mordecai is suggesting a calling, which implies a caller. He's suggesting a purpose, which implies there is a purposer. So here's the question for you to ask yourself today. Do you believe there is a purpose for your current situation? Do you believe that you have a calling in your present circumstances? It's actually what our Bible teaches. Let's look at our July verse to know. This is a brand new one, so no one has to pretend like they've memorized it already. Look right here, uh, right after the sermon text, our July verse is Romans 8, 28. Let's recite it together. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I want you to memorize that. Because that right there, my friends, is a soft pillow in a hard world. Notice first what it doesn't say. Providence does not teach us that all things are good. No, so much around us is not good. When you get that phone call and you find out that one of your loved ones has died tragically. When your bills are like this, your bank accounts like this and you go to work. And then suddenly you find out you've just been laid off. How about when you're trying to do something and then someone you trust who's helped you along the way suddenly sabotages everything you've been up to? How about you go to the doctor because you've got a stomach ache and he walks in and tells you you have stage four cancer? None of that's good. None of that's good. And I'll remind us that Esther's life has not been all that she's wanted. How would you like to grow up an orphan? No father, no mother, in a foreign land where people don't like Jews. How would you like to be abducted as a teenager and forced to be a play king for a much older king? A woman in Persia, as it's true in most of the world and most of history, has very little freedom, very little power. She may have physical comforts, right? She's queen but her life is full of shame and regrets. I would argue it's much like our culture, but we have plenty of comforts and a whole lot of people with so many shame, so much shame and so many regrets. Maybe you feel that today. Friends, Providence gives you a whole new view 
of your situation, of your circumstances. Providence tells us that there is potential in the problem, that there is meaning in the middle of that mess. Something good and will and can come out of that. Why? Because of who God is. Because nothing's out of God's control. And God promises in Romans 8, 28, that he will even take what is evil in your life and make it work out for good and for glory. So that really leaves you with two questions. Number one, do you love God? Do you love God? Then you are called according to his purpose. You can turn upward and outward no matter what situation you're facing. The second question is, do you truly know this? And I mean not just intellectually, but where it's actually gotten you to the core of your being, the bottom of your being, where you've truly taken it in, from the top of your head to the bottom of your toes. Do you know this, that all things work together for good? Do you believe that even the scariest things that you'll face are part of God's perfect purpose? This is a call to trust in our God, who will never leave us and never forsake us. That's what Esther's choosing to do right now. That's what she's believing when she says, if I perish, I perish. The believer need not even fear death because God works for our good in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Pastor Tim Keller, a man I greatly admired, he recently died. Rex was showing me something he said recently. He had total peace as he faced the end of his life. And you know what he wrote? He is actually quoting uh, George Herbert. He said, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. How do you like that? All that he can do is plant you, and you finally come up into the beautiful flower that you were meant to be. You're just the seed, and death just plants you, and then you finally become who you are meant to be. I love that. So do you love God? Have you bowed the knee to King Jesus and you're saying, I'm going to serve him as best I can by his grace and by the Spirit alone? Jesus, you died for my sins. You took away my shame. And I'm going to live to follow you. If you love God, you're called according to his purpose. And you can then take on the same thing that he did for you in his sacrifice. You can now live a sacrificial life upward and outward going forward. We need not even fear death like Esther who embraces her purpose. She tells Mordecai, go hold a three-day fast. I'm not actually sure if Esther was an Elvis fan. She's sure singing, only fools rush in, right here, isn't she? I mean, she's got God's purpose right before her. He puts a question, you know, but she doesn't rush right in, does she? She hears the call to face the king, and she says, we need to hold a three-day fast, three days. Stop. Slow down. I actually didn't talk about fasting at all last week, even though I read this text. And someone afterwards at the door came up to me and said the Spirit had prompted them in their heart to fast. <laughs> that always encourages me because I know God's doing far more than what I can imagine he's doing, you know, in the midst of a congregation like this. What is fasting about? Why is Esther doing it? Well, I think you can see pretty obviously it is upward and it is outward three-day fast, call these people to do it. I'll just say briefly, Esther is saying, number one, that she must depend on God right now more than on herself. She's actually passing the test our first parents failed, Adam and Eve. Remember that? Either you feed your flesh or you trust God and his word. 
Remember, God gave them a one-tree fast. You have this all-you-can-eat buffet. You have to wait on one thing. Not yet. Trust me. And, of course, we know Adam and Eve rebelled, and they blew our world to bits. She's saying, I'm going to fast. Second, fasting is essentially saying, God, I just lost my appetite. That's what fasting is. She sees this edict, and it makes her stomach sick. You could say Esther fasts because she sees Satan is hungry. She doesn't want to see Satan swallow up her people, so she fasts. Do you have any loved ones who are in Satan's snares right now? Third, fasting is a prompt to greater prayer because all your eating time becomes prayer time. Every time you have a hunger pain, guess what? Time to pray. It's not strong-arming God into doing something you want. It's saying, God, you have a plan. And right now I'm going to display that I would rather die, make myself less, so that you will bring life here in this situation. Providence, friends, invites fasting and prayer because they're actually the means that God uses to prepare us and to prepare others. You want to see revival? Anybody? (laughs) I'm tired of seeing all the stuff I see in our world. Prayer and fasting is us saying, God, we cannot possibly change this world apart from your help. Notice how belief in providence has moved Esther from comfortable self-preservation to committed self-sacrifice. Do you see the switch? And also, instead of being proud and hasty, she's patient and she's humble. And we see in the next scene how it pays off. Let's read verses 1 and 2 again. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Notice how you have those three days that are kind of a blur, and then the author slows us down so we can really take in this scene. Esther, she's put on her royal robes. She's power dressing. Is that still a term? I remember in the 80s, that's what women used to do. She's owning her position as queen. For three days, she's been preparing for this moment. Her heart has to be in her throat, no doubt. To approach uninvited, to enter the throne room, this is a capital crime. There's actually archaeological artifacts that show a Persian king holding a scepter, and behind him there's a soldier with this really large axe. The scepter stood for mercy. The axe was ready to take off the heads of anybody who decided to ignore protocol. No one dared to come unless summoned. No doubt, as the author slows us down so we can see the whole scene, (laughs) Esther, she comes into view and takes her stand right there in the inner court. She would have seen the glint (laughs) of that sharp axe blade. (laughs) Been looking at that jeweled scepter in the king's hands. Imagine the guard bracing himself at this moment, grabbing his hand a little bit more firmly. What is this? Will she find favor? Will she be accepted? To those in a pagan king's inner court, it's not like our king's court, 
that we just read about. Boldness is not a thing to do. It's not a favorable posture. The axe man's ready. Meanwhile, what's going on outside? Thousands of people are praying for Esther at this very moment. I bet they're on their knees praying as hard as they can. Why? Oh, we know how this king is. He gets angry real fast, and he has a history, a reputation of how he deals with other queens who don't obey. They're praying for her right now at this moment. And Esther steps up, and she's saying, If I perish, I perish. And then Ahasuerus, imagine he finally sees, he spies this gutsy guest. But there's something about this woman he's never seen before. She's dressed in her best, and then the light catches her hair. (laughs) Their eyes lock, and John Legend begins to play in the background. All of me loves all of you. Love your curves and all your edges, all your perfect imperfections. I'm sorry, that might have been just my imagination, but I didn't sing that one. It's too high for me. Um, He sees her imperfection, right? Her boldness. And he extends his scepter. And he's essentially saying, oh, my queen, you had me at hello. This is a beautiful scene. And he says, Esther, queen, what is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. Now, that's hyperbole. But he is so enchanted with this woman. He is intoxicated with her that she would risk all to see him. He's ready to grant her a huge favor. This could not be going any better, right? This part of the story, we're like, this is great. This is more than she could have hoped for. With the salvation of her people now within reach, Esther says, here's my request. Do you have dinner plans? (laughs) What? We know Esther did not risk her life for a dinner date. Why doesn't Esther spill the beans here? I mean, this is perfect, right? Friends, I invite you, this is your homework this week, to go home and read Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31. Esther is becoming the Proverbs 31 woman due to her believing God's word and praying for wisdom in this situation. Proverbs 31 tells us about the wife, the godly wife whose trajectory is upward and outward. That kind of woman is wise, she's strong, she's selfless, and she seeks to be a blessing to her husband all her life. Esther sees God's potential purpose may actually go beyond the salvation of her people. That's what I believe here. It may extend to her unbelieving husband, as we read in 1 Peter 3, who can be won over by their godly conduct without a word. Think about what happens if she says at this moment, thank you for the blank check. Save my people from this horrible edict you just passed. The king's going to look like a fool in his court. He just passed a law in his ignorance that's going to result in the execution of his own bride who he loves. You might not think his reputation would matter to her. After all, he's not only agreed to this, but he's neglected her for a month now. And don't think he's sleeping alone during those 30 days. He's got hundreds of concubines. I bet Esther feels unappreciated. But Esther doesn't let her inner feelings of anger, jealousy, frustration, they're not ruling her right now, are they? 
She knows that her emotions are wonderful guides, but they're horrible masters. And Providence, looking upward and outward, teaches us that our emotions are wonderful guides, not masters to rule us. She refuses to ruin his reputation. She trusts God can use her patient posture to help her lousy husband become a better king and save her people. So she invites him to dinner. She says, oh, and bring your best bud Haman along. He has no fear of her enemy either. I think she's a pretty wise woman. She knows that the way to these guys' hearts is through their stomach. It's like they're feasting every other chapter, right? Some of you women know that. You're laughing. <laughs> I think we got meal upstairs. And, but yeah, sorry. King's eyes, boy, they just light up. The idea of a dinner date with this mystery woman, right? He hasn't seen in so long. And he says, hurry up, get Haman over here. We'll go to the feast. And we move quickly then to that feast. They have a great time, and it just like advances us really fast again. The timing's now perfect. The king's drinking, right? He's in a generous mood. He repeats his blank check offer, verse 6. What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it'll be fulfilled. The king is dying at this moment to give her what she wants. Now's the time. And notice how Esther replies. Verse 7, Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is... She's leading on like she's going to answer, right? But no. And if I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and to fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Now when I first read this, my thought is like, why the delay, Esther? Have you lost your nerve? You no longer trust in God? Not at all, my friends. She's a Proverbs 31, a wise woman. With this second dinner date, she's literally setting the plate for success. Think about this. The king has now reiterated his offer two times, which means it's going to be a whole lot harder for him to refuse it. Plus, she has now let the king know without a doubt that she has a big ask. A big ask. But he's not put off at all, is he? Because of her selfless conduct. She is showing her delight to serve him once again. Let me add, Esther knows this is going to be hard for him. Think about it. Esther may have his heart right now, but Haman just patted the king's wallet. Right? Esther Esther realizes the king's going to have to determine who's more replaceable. You see, when this all shakes out, somebody's got to go. Either his best buddy Haman and all the money that comes with him or his beloved queen, and he's got a history with queens, right? Esther has to win her king so that he can do the better thing. See that saving her life and the lives of her people is actually the better way so that he can actually be sacrificial, that he can begin to live outward and maybe even upward. So that he won't become like his best buddy, the self-centered King ha- or self-centered Haman. So let's consider our final scene here. Verse nine. Haman leaves the feast joyful and glad of heart. You see him? Oh, he's got a little bit of alcohol in him. He's just been to this great feast. He's top of the world, and poof, the whole joy thing goes right out the window. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. How does Haman go from glad and joyful 
to filled with wrath in one sentence. How do the actions of one little person cause such an emotional roller coaster? Why can't Haman just stay happy after what been like the greatest evening of his whole life? Haman cannot stay happy because he is opposed to providence. He's opposed to providence. What do you mean, Joel? Haman refuses to accept that God, not he, is in control of all things. That is why he cannot be at peace with this situation. I was riding my bike last week to church, and I heard a car come up behind me, so I moved over. And as this fellow passes me, he slows down so that he can scream at me, call me a name, and then lecture me about why we have sidewalks. You know what I was thinking? Wow, you're not full of fury because I made you lose a few seconds, which is pretty obvious because he took a lot of time to berate me. I thought, you said, fellow, you are so angry at God. You hate the reality that you live in God's world and you must deal with the situations God set you in. You're filled with fury that you have to share the road with poor peddling pastors. And I think he would blow a gasket right now if he knew that God was using his evil yesterday for good today, that he was going to a sermon illustration to help turn some of you folks from self-centeredness. So let me ask you, have you ever been having a good day feeling fine, and then suddenly an interruption comes. Maybe someone gets in your way. And in the blink of an eye, you go from here to you smash, you're crashed. Ever been there? <laughs> you know why that happens? Because you're turned in and not out, not up. You have a high view of yourself, and you have a low view of providence, a low view of providence. You're full of pride, and you cannot see that this problem in front of you has the potential for good. You can't believe that because of who God is. For application, let's, let's just end with comparing Haman and Esther. Esther has the same thing, right? She finds herself in the middle of a huge problem, though. But she takes a low view of herself despite her position as queen, and she takes up a sacrificial posture with the goal of blessing others. Haman discovers a little problem. I mean a little problem. I mean, Mordecai is entirely passive here. Plus, he's a dead man walking, by the way. right? He's going to be out of his life in just a matter of time. But Haman has a high view of himself in his position. So he takes up a self-centered posture with the goal of bringing him down. In fact, that's what we see in this ridiculous scene. right? Haman heads home and he gathers all his supporters. They're not just there. He's like calling them, get over here, come to my place. He surrounds himself with anybody and everybody who will reaffirm him. He gives them a tour of his stables, the gallery. He walks them through his wine cellar. Do you see this? Look what I got here. Pulls up his Facebook page, you know, so you can show him pictures of all of his boys. You see what my boy did here? Look at this guy. Look at him. Anything else? Oh, and next, then he gives them a huge list of all his accomplishments. Have you ever been with someone who just won't quit talking about themselves? Doesn't it just wear you down? Talk about a windbag. Look at me. Look at my money. Look at my family. Look at my position. How much better I am than all those wannabes. Oh, and did I mention that the royal couple, they can't get enough of me. I'm just, I'm just the greatest. And it's really even more absurd when you realize all these folks know this stuff already. Did any of his friends say, really? You're the vice president? I was wondering what you did for a job. 
You think his wife is saying, we have 10 boys? Oh my goodness. I, I just, <laughs> this is ridiculous. Why is he doing this? Because our self, when we're self-centered, it's a very brittle thing. Our selves are brittle, so fragile. We need endless affirmation from others when we're focused inward, which explains why verse 13, just ridiculous. All this, by the way, he's talking to his family. All of you are worth nothing to me. So long with Mordecai, the Jew sits in the gate. Haman cannot enjoy all the many blessings he has because he's turned inward and because his self is so brittle. By the way, self-centeredness is not always seen in just superiority complexes, but it's also an inferiority because it's always basing its worth on everyone else around us, right? I'm all right because I'm better than him and her. Or it's, I'm not all right because they're better than me. Same thing. Not Mordecai. Look at him. He's at peace in his situation. Why? Because Mordecai is turned upward. He says, I'm all right because I'm not better than anyone, but my God is superior than everyone, and I'm with him, and he's with me. See the difference? He's singing, This is my Father's world, and though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. You see him? See the difference? Same with Esther. Notice another difference between sacrificial and self-centered. Esther gathers a community because she sees she's insufficient. She sees that she's inadequate, right? She says, I need all of you to pray and to fast for me because I can't possibly do this on my own. She even gathers Gentiles. Maybe we should be asking some of our unbelieving neighbors to pray for us because we are, we're so insufficient. We can't get it done. But we believe that our God, his grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in our weakness. That's why we can look to him at all times. It's the opposite of Haman's community. That's my point. Haman gathers a community which reinforces his brittle self with this suggestion. They come up with this suggestion for him. Build a gallows 75 feet tall and tomorrow get the king's permission to hang Mordecai. And this pleased Haman. And then he sends off his crew to Home Depot right away. Go get over there. I need to land the plane, but I'll note that we're not actually told whether Haman's community really wanted to do this. We'll actually find them changing their tune just after this. They know a whole lot more than they're letting on right now. But people who are in subordinate positions, they often comply with those who use their position and their power to exploit others. It's in our culture right now. Just be aware of it. And I couldn't help but wonder about their request. Why 75 feet tall? That's how tall this is. That's quite the structure to hang a guy. I think because they've just endured Haman's boasting all night long. <laughs> I think there might be some gallows humor going on. They have a gallows built that matches the size of Haman's ego. <laughs> That's what I think is going on. Haman's fragile self, the calling of all his friends and family, the bragging about all his resources actually made me think of... Uh, Led Zeppelin's Gallows Pole song. I don't know if you've heard that before. Where you have a criminal saying, Hangman, hangman, wait a little while. I think I see my friends are coming, riding many miles. And his friends show up one after another. Family shows up. 
provide all these resources, the silver, the gold. Sister shows up and brings a lot of pleasure to the hangman. The whole time the pace of the song's picking up. At the very end, the music's really cranking. And the criminal says, hey, hangman, can I go free now? And then the hangman, hangman finally speaks the last lines. He thanks the criminal for all the wealth, thanks him for all the pleasures. And he says, and now I laugh oh so hard to see a swinging on the gallows pole. And laughing is what God is doing at the end of chapter 5, friends. Mordecai and Esther have no idea that there's a new threat, actually. It's going to happen before the feast. They don't know about this other crisis. But God who sits in the heavens, Psalm 2, he laughs. He laughs at the rulers of this age who shake their fists, who look at their resources and all they have. He laughs because he's in complete control of it all. So while Haman feverishly works into the night, you know what you and I can do until next Sunday? We can lay our heads on our soft pillow of providence. No matter what you face this week, no matter what comes, you can lay your head on that soft pillow of God's providence. And I hope we will this week. And also be asking that question. How can I live outward and upward to your glory, God? You've got something for me to do. Help me to do it. Let's pray to that end. Heavenly Father, we praise you for you have done everything for us in Jesus Christ. We have no resources in and of ourselves. And that's why we come to you in prayer right now asking that you, you will do far more than all we could ever ask or imagine in our lives and in our time. You have positioned all of us in unique circumstances and situations and you have given each one of us the gospel that tells us that you're in control of all things that we can be patient in adversity, we can be thankful in prosperity, and we can have good confidence in the future because you are our faithful God and Father and that no creature can separate us from your love because all of us are so in your hand that nothing and no one can without your will move us one inch. We ask and pray that we will be able to stand tall and firm in our faith. We pray that you'll help us to live lives that are sacrificial in love for others and we ask and pray, Father, that some people might even come to us this week and ask us for the reason, for the hope that is within us, that we might be able to give you all the glory and praise. Heavenly Father, look down and see from heaven. Rend the heavens and come down. We ask and pray, transform us and help us, Lord, to just rejoice in all that you're doing, even in our day, what we can't see. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.